Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Troubling headlines there yeah. a few moments ago from Mayor de Blasio. Now, we knew that there were certain areas in some of the boroughs of New York City that were experiencing higher rates of infection, but certainly above 3% is pretty terrifying because just a couple of days ago, it was below 1%. Yeah, exactly. So is it the question is, is it simply seasonal or is there something else going on here? Right. And as Mayor de Blasio said, the problem is in primarily nine of the 146 zip codes. But if it's an exponential spread and there's any kind of you know bleeding over from those nine zip codes, then so suddenly it's 18 zip codes and suddenly it's uh, whatever the double of 18 is. Yep. <laughs> you can do the math, Paul. Perfect time for our next guest. Dr. Tom Frieden, former director of the CDC and commissioner of the New York City Health Department. Uh, he joins us here. Dr. Frieden, thanks so much for joining us. This is just, just perfect timing to get you on. We'd love to get your reaction to the news about the New York City infection rate. Well, we've been very concerned about what's happening here. Um, we've seen for the past couple of weeks uh, uh, explosive spread, really, in a few communities. And the question has always been, is this going to spread uh, more widely outside of the community. Uh, I, I've said for a couple of weeks that the chances of uh, controlling it in these communities are, are really slim uh, because of the combination of a lot of crowding and a lack of trust in the government. And that kind of combination is just lethal to the ability to control it. So I expect that we will see big increases in uh, these groups. And again, the question is how widely we'll see uh, cases around New York City. I'm a bit frustrated by the lack of clear information from New York City since it was taken from the health department. We just haven't been getting the kind of granular information that I would expect. Um, they've been sending out news releases every day, but they don't have a lot of basic information on them, not even how many tests are positive, whether people are being isolated, how long it's taking to isolate people, whether contacts are being quarantined, what portion of con cases are from quarantine contacts. These are essential indicators that we really don't know about. So I'm, I'm quite, as a New Yorker, I'm quite concerned about this cluster, and I'm, I'm hopeful we'll see a better response than we have so far. Just to clarify, Dr. Frieden, are those questions for City Hall? Um, yes, it's basically the city government needs to provide that. And, yep. um, you know, I, I know they're dealing with a very challenging situation. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And the, the most important thing will be to uh, gain trust of the affected community and figure out ways to control COVID that are accepted by the community. And that can be very difficult. Dr. Frieden, so the 3% is the daily rate of positive tests. Now, that is not the R rate, although it is triple the amount that we had just a few days ago. These are just positive tests. Does that automatically mean that the R rate around the city goes higher? And, and is it possible that, you know, we have different R rates, that the R rates in those communities, you know, expands or gets a, a lot um, higher, but in the rest of the city, it could stay pretty low? Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of R as, a, as an instantaneous measure. It relies on a lot of assumptions that can be calculated in different ways. It's, ironically, it's very easy to understand, but uh, if you get under the hood, it's quite difficult to calculate accurately. And if you look at the different calculations, they both vary and have wide confidence intervals. 
So uh, I, I do think percent positivity is important. However, uh, since the city is focusing on testing high-risk people, even that can be a little difficult. And that's why I'd rather see things like what proportion of the cases do you know where they got it? And how long is it taking for you to isolate people who are positive? Uh, these are outcome indicators, not process indicators. Uh, we'd also like to see a uh, number of infections by area. Uh, we've had over a month of around 300 cases a day in New York City. And in that month, we still haven't had this information. In fairness, uh, this is something that very few places around the U.S. have done. But, you know, we expect more from New York City. How do you think this is going to play out over the coming months? Is, uh, Dr. Frieden, obviously there's concerns on a national basis about uh, a second wave or just the, the fall and the winter months, you know, igniting growth rates in, in these infection rates and so on. Is that kind of your base case scenario? Well, I don't think we should be thinking about a second wave. We're going to see waves of this infection uh, going on for many months. We need to chip away at the pandemic. Even a vaccine isn't going to lead to a fairy tale ending here. The challenge is uh, to reduce spread through mask wearing and closures of crowded indoor places and to stop cases and clusters from spreading by strategic testing, rapid isolation, complete contact tracing, and supportive quarantine. And um, even when and if, we, if and when we have a vaccine, we're going to need to do all of those things. And in New York City, which has suffered so much in this pandemic, it's particularly important. Yeah, it's really troubling, Dr. Frieden, because there was a time when it wasn't quite clear whether it was a post-Labor Day bump. And it's, I think, pretty clear now that it's not that, that at least in these communities, it's just spread, right? Just, just general spread. Is it for sure then that things like outdoor dining and so on, that, that, that we'll also see spread from that or, you know, other events, other gatherings, or could this be isolated? One of the reasons we need really good public health work is to get a better sense of where the virus is spreading. I was out and about over the weekend and, you know, outdoor dining can mean very open air and likely quite safe. I also saw outdoor dining that was essentially in a shed with three walls uh, and no ventilation. That is not very different from indoor dining. So we are going to have to be careful about how we reopen and prioritize things like getting our kids back in school. It's really important and it can be done. It just means that we have to do it carefully, make sure that teachers and students and staff who are vulnerable continue to uh, learn from distance get mask wearing up as close to 100% as possible in schools, work in cohorts or pods. I, I think um, the, the, the fact is that getting kids back to school is enormously important for their learning, for our economy, and it can be done, but only if it's done very safely. Dr. Tom Frieden, thank you so much for joining us. At perfect timing here today as we get the news about New York City's daily positive rate over 3% for the first time in months. Dr. Tom Frieden, former director of the CDC and commissioner of the New York City Health Department, also president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives. Uh, again, we appreciate your thoughts here. Again, the news, New York City's daily positive rate over 3% for the first time in months. That's the bad news. The good news perhaps is that it's relatively contained in a certain geographic areas around the city. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined today by 
Brooke Sutherland, deals and industrial columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, to discuss her latest column entitled, Dark Time for Aviation is About to Get Darker. Not what the airlines needed to hear, Brooke. What's the story? Right. So this week is when the $25 billion in payroll aid that was keeping a lot of those airline workers employed is set to expire. We've had you know numerous warnings from United Airlines and American Airlines in particular about the volume of layoffs that would ensue if the aid is, in fact, allowed to expire. And right now, that does seem to be where we are headed. There's no real traction out of Congress and the White House on a new deal. Um, they're trying. There's, you know, some sort of last minute uh, attempts at securing some sort of agreement here. But we are getting really down to the wire. And it's just not clear if there is enough momentum to get a deal across the line. So at the very least, you know, we may be looking at several thousand uh, layoffs. And, you know, I think what doesn't get quite as much attention, um, because obviously jobs are so much of the focus here, is that that initial payroll aid also included provisions guaranteeing a certain level of service out of these airlines. They were required to keep a certain number of flights um, to locations that they had served pre-pandemic. Now, that did get walked back slightly, just given some of the very low demand on a lot of these routes. But there are a lot of flights out there that don't necessarily need to be kept once this payroll aid expires. And so that can have much farther reaching uh, ramifications. Brooke, we're only at the end of September. Even if we do come to some kind of a deal, how long for will it last? We're hearing now that a vaccine may not be available to everybody until, you know, the middle of next year, as we knew, and that even then the original vaccine, it won't be perfect. Right. No, I mean, I think that's a really good point is what's being discussed is, you know, potentially in a $25 billion in payroll aid, and that would go through until March. Now, as you said, most predictions don't have the vaccine widely commercially available by that point. If you look at the aerospace industry in particular, uh, Boeing, Moody's, uh, the International Air Transport Association, Raytheon, take your pick. All of these companies are pointing to 2023 2024 as the time period when traffic finally gets back to 2019 levels. So you're right, we're in for a prolonged recovery. At most, uh, an extension of the payroll aid would just buy time. But of course, that's valuable time for those thousands of airline workers that have stuck around. Um, The other point I do want to make is, you know, the payroll aid prevented involuntary layoffs. But there are, you know, probably in excess of 150,000 people that have taken voluntary options at the airlines. These include buyouts, early retirement, reduced hours, unpaid leave. Um, So there is some question about, you know, whether the payroll aid, as it was initially structured, actually achieved its end aim of preserving jobs um, or if, you know, there were a lot of workarounds. And there's no discussion at this point of how to sort of stem that tide, um, mostly just because we're having trouble getting traction on any kind of deal at all. So, Brooke, is the expectation that this will be across the board, every company in the industry, uh, all the big airlines will, in fact, uh, announce furloughs or layoffs, or is it just going to be company by company, do you think? It's really company by company, and it really comes down to the number of people that took those voluntary options that I mentioned. Um, So Delta and Southwest have both said they've gotten really good participation on those uh, from their employees, and that will help them avoid layoffs for at least a little while. Southwest has said it can hold off until the end of this year. Delta has said, you know, at least for its flight attendants and on-ground workers, it can actually avoid layoffs until uh, summer of 2021. Um, Pilots, on the other hand, are still potentially facing cuts at Delta. Um, So it is airline-specific, and, you know, I think 
Uh, the weaker carriers certainly have a harder time here in terms of weathering the crisis. But, you know, again, I go back to this does have further uh, ramifications in the aerospace industry because of those minimum service levels. So we have seen, you know, huge job cuts announcements out of the aerospace manufacturers and suppliers, but you could potentially see those deepen. Because if you're not flying as many planes, that means you don't need as much maintenance and service work. Um, those numbers maybe, you know, have been somewhat inflated just because of these minimum service levels. And those companies depend more on the number of planes that are flown, not the number of people that are on them. Um, so there is some question of whether we get the deeper cuts at the manufacturers. There was a story out of Bloomberg News uh, yesterday, actually, about Boeing planning some deeper cuts to its workforce and reevaluating some of its real estate holdings. So I don't know that we've necessarily seen the worst of this yet in terms of the fallout on jobs. Data from IATA through July shows airline passenger traffic was down 80 to 90 percent for four straight months, according to your column, Brooke. I mean, it's not that all airlines are in cahoots here, right? Some of them have different needs to others and it's, it's, it may not be in everybody's interest to work together. What's happening in Washington, D.C.? Who's taking the lead? You know, so there's been sort of bipartisan support for an extension of support to airlines. And I think a lot of that just comes down to it's not a great headline to have tens of thousands of workers hitting, you know, the unemployment figures just a month before the U.S. election. I don't think anybody wants that. We are hearing, you know, some frustration on the part of other industries that have also been hit hard by this crisis, whether that's the motor coach industry or hotels or restaurants or small businesses or what have you saying, okay, well, why are these jobs more important? And I think that's factoring into the Democrats' push to say any kind of aid has to be part of a broader stimulus package that we're not going to single out the airlines as deserving special treatment. Now, that, of course, has been sort of a sticking point to getting a deal done. Um, and, you know, we'll have to see what happens there. So, Brooke, you mentioned minimum traffic levels. Where are the airlines now in terms of percentage of the flights that they are flying, and how much lower could it go if they don't have that, that minimum standard? Yeah, so, you know, American Airlines has already come out and said that they're planning on outright cutting some service to about 15 cities. Now, those are smaller cities, but there are companies based in some of those locations, and I think some of that you know, reflects just how deeply business travel has dropped. Um, but, you know, uh, NEF actually did a really interesting analysis finding that U.S. Airlines' current flight schedule for October is about half of what the carriers had been planning for that month as of August. So you're already seeing those schedules come in pretty significantly. Um, some of that, of course, is, you know, once we got past the summer, there just wasn't necessarily the pickup in business travel um, and leave travel that you might expect especially after we get through that sort of summer peak. But a lot of that is the minimum service levels coming off. Now, you know, some of these smaller airports might see service cut altogether, but even the larger ones are going to see flights consolidated. Um, You know, you don't need to run five direct flights from New York to Kansas City a day. You probably just need one at this point. Um, And even that might not even be full. And, you know, I think you're going to see these flights drop pretty significantly. Brooke, we're going to leave it there, but thank you, Brooke Sutherland, staying on top of everything aviation-related here in the United States and abroad, really, because it's a it's a global industry. And as Brooke says in her column today, dark time for aviation is about to get darker. Brooke is Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and that was our Bloomberg Opinion segment. All right, it is time to talk bankruptcies, another very distressing sign of everything that's going on in the country. Well, in New York, COVID bankruptcies have spiked, and according to our next guest, they're going to spike even more. We've only just seen the beginning of the surge in bankruptcies. 
Josh Soule is a distressed debt reporter for Bloomberg and collaborated on the COVID bankruptcies New York Sports Club to Sizzler. Josh, thanks for joining. Give us an update. Where exactly are we in uh, the re- in the retail, restaurant, airline, oil producer, hotel bankruptcy process? Hey, Bonnie, thanks for having me. Yeah, what, what we saw when we looked at bankruptcy filings uh, in the New York region, uh, which is we saw a 40% increase in bankruptcies when compared to the same period last year, you know, kind of March to September is the the, the pandemic period. And we saw a big increase. Um, we also saw that about 6,000 New York City businesses uh, closed, about 4,000 of those permanently. That's information from Yelp. Um, that's not a complete picture. Um, but those are some of the metrics we have to show that um, the New York region is is really is really suffering, and uh, what a number of experts told us is that it's going to get worse. Wow! So it's interesting, Josh. I mean, as I came into the city a couple of weeks ago, I was just blown away, unfortunately, by all the vacant stores and the signs for you know stores for for lease and gone out of business here. And we're gonna, and that was when there was some support, some fiscal stimulus still in the marketplace. What's the expectation here for some of these businesses? Will they be permanently closed, or do you think these are businesses that can come back? What's the feeling at this point? Well, exactly what you just said is so what is what some of the experts highlighted, which is that as the PPP money runs out, um, you have more businesses that just say like, well, yeah, like doesn't look like there's any more coming, and there's not really any light in the light on the horizon. So I'm gonna I'm gonna now shut down. Um, I'm now gonna shut down completely. And um, exactly what you saw, you can see in you know business districts all over the city. I, I chose Madison Avenue, um, you know, partly because it's so iconic, partly because it's close to my in-laws' house where I uh, where I work during the day. But I was able to walk down there on a series of, over there on a series of afternoons and count the number of shuttered buildings. And Madison Avenue, I mean, is a yeah. an iconic shopping district, you know, the world over, glamour glamorous and you know beautiful people spending huge amounts of money. And what I saw was um, after a careful count, uh, you know. A, about 40% of the stores were closed completely. Um, and the ones that were open, even the real, you know, Dolce & Gabbana and Prada, even like the big big names, you know, you have a couple of, you know, well-dressed sales salespeople and some broad-shouldered security guards kind of standing around with no customers. It was... Uh, it was o- almost eerie how quiet, how quiet and desolate it was. Well, of course, and some of this is that there are no tourists coming in, and we know that a lot of tourists would go to these areas and spend money, having waited a long time to get to places like Madison Avenue, Tiffany's, all these famous names. But the problem also is that, you know, when you talk about a business, it's an ongoing concern, and that that's language used for a reason so for example california pizza kitchen which you would think was a great business that would have plenty in reserve i mean it's gone bankrupt because businesses are ongoing concerns and if people stop eating pizza you don't have very much time before you have to close up shop exactly right and actually just i happen to be covering uh on my bankruptcy beat three pizza uh three pizza chains or pizza operators so chuck e cheese um, I've been listening to very sad, you know, as, as memories of going to Chuck E. Cheese as a kid. I've been listening to very, very sad bankruptcy <laughs> hearings where they, where they, where they're like, where they, where you know, where they talk about like, Your Honor, we need, we need permission to destroy all of these tickets because um, otherwise, if they get out on the market, we're going to be on the hook for all the prizes. Um, but these are all, these are all tickets that we're not going to use because Stop. no one's coming in because um, <laughs> we can't, we sad. can't, be, we can't be running inside. And um, also, uh, the biggest operator of Pizza Hut restaurants, NPC, also filed for bankruptcy, and then as as you mentioned, California Pizza Kitchen, and yeah, people are people aren't going out and sitting down, um, and these businesses are are really hurting. Um, so it, yeah, very 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 tough out there. So Josh, is there what's the next? Is there a, 
I think across retail in general, are they lobbying hard down in Washington for more stimulus? I think I think people would really, really like to see more stimulus. Definitely. Um, the, another point I wanted to wanted to make is uh, when you mentioned tourists, um, the the point that we really uh, that we really heard about from a lot of experts is that while tourists are important, office workers when office workers aren't right. coming into the city when they're staying at home when they're working at home, they're not. Uh, they're not going to Chopped to pick up a quick $12 salad. They're not going to Jimmy's uh, to grab uh, some lamb on rice. They're not stopping in to maybe buy a quick uh, gift for their loved one at, at, Dol- at Dolce. Um, there's just no there's just no <laughs> foot traffic. And the number we heard, uh, you know, 15%, about 15% of office workers are back in Manhattan. Um, that's that, 15% of the foot traffic you're used to. That is not enough to keep, you know, a, a salad shop or a luxury retailer going. Yes, I regularly pop into Dolce for a little thing on my way home for my loved one. Well, you know, just to keep the family happy, you know, just to keep keep the kids happy. Here's yeah. some leather jackets for everyone. That right? and a Chuck E. Cheese voucher, totally. <laughs> so, Josh, how many of these will reorganize, you know, will bankruptcy judges allow time to sort of come up with a plan? And in a few months' time, this conversation will be like, it doesn't matter because we can go to Chuck E. Cheese again. You know, we, we're, we're talking about... Some, we're, we're talking about permanent closures here. Um, the uh, New York, uh, uh, the um, uh, business group in New York estimated that uh, up to a third of New York City businesses wow. could close completely. Um, and a lot of our favorite, a lot of our favorite shops, um, they don't even file for bankruptcy. They just lock up the. They just sometimes they just lock the door and and walk away. So yep. um, there will be some there will be some restructurings. Um, right. But we're also going to see some just. You're never going to have your yeah. fa- your favorite eggs and bacon at your at your corner diner because that yeah. place is just gone. Hey, Josh, thanks so much for joining us and for this reporting. Josh Saul, distressed debt and bankruptcy reporter, uh, f- uh, fantastic column today. Very, very dire the economic situation in New York and likely to get worse. Well, not that the market didn't have enough to deal with in terms of external uncertainties with the pandemic and the economic fallout. Uh, now in the U.S. Big election coming up in just a matter of weeks to get a sense of how one of the largest institutional investors in the world is thinking about it. We welcome Andy Block, our head of U.S. government affairs for Invesco. They have over $1.1 trillion in assets under management. He joins us in Washington. Andy, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's focus on the election. One of the key issues that I think concerns investors is what if this is not a smooth, clean, timely election? What if there is some level of uh, people contesting the election and maybe even delaying the announcement of some results. How do you guys think that's going to play out? So, Paul, thanks for having me on. Um, I think that's a great question. That's a question on a lot of people's mind right now. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that with mail-in voting and the pandemic situation that we may not know the ultimate winner on the night of the election, but we could know it within the next couple of days of the election. So I don't really see it as being a long-term um, uncertainty, but for any period of uncertainty, there definitely creates volatility in the market, but longer term, it really doesn't have an impact. So all of the choices that you've been making for your clients and so on, are you sticking with them or is there anything that would make you change some of those? Well, there's nothing really that is helping us, making us change it right now. I think it's really, we're right now saying, look, any volatility that's going to happen is going to be more short-term. And there are some issues out there vis-a-vis um, Biden and Trump where there may be a difference. But those are on the micro level, not on the macro level. 
On the macro level, we don't think it matters who's the president, but on the micro level, we do think certain sectors we're paying attention are definitely healthcare, tech, um, building in trades, uh, fossil fuel. Those are things we're looking at very closely because their policies are much different. So, Andy, how about a scenario that some people paint as you know possibly, certainly possible, is a Democratic administration as well as a Democratic Senate? Uh, how does that play out for you guys? Because that is what some people are beginning to discount. Yeah, so if, if Vice President Biden is able to become president, um, there's a more likely chance that he also takes the Senate. And as we know, historically, when um, one party has all levels of gov- power in the government, presidency, House and Senate, that's a chance for some major legislation. We saw with Obamacare under Obama, we saw the first uh, two years of Trump, he was able to get major tax reform through. So that will clear the way for some major policy changes. I think um, Vice President Biden would, would focus first and foremost on infrastructure and dealing with, and dealing with COVID-19 response. Um, and um, I think that could see a, a lot of changes that could impact people. Healthcare is another thing we're looking at. Um, he would definitely want, would want to expand on Obamacare, and that's going to affect a lot of companies in those sectors. Enough to make you sort of want to buy those companies or sell those companies? And when do you make that decision? Is it the day after the election result is out? Well, you try to beat it, actually. So, yes, um, I think, look, I mean, with last, with 2016 and the surprise we had there, I think it's kind of tough on that. But I think there's some areas where um, I don't want to be too specific on this because it's, it's too fluid right now. But, yes, we are making sure that the people we're advising know the right areas to go. Um, look, health, health insurance is even outside the election. It's really about the Supreme Court right now. If you look at the health insurance sector, um, how impacted it will be with the, with the dis- discussion on Obamacare and whether it's constitutional, that's, that's one that's front and center. So we're looking at a lot of those areas. So, Andy, one of the areas that the market liked when President Trump was elected uh, was the one of regulation, the expectation that a Republican president uh, with the Republican Senate uh, would be deregulatory. Is the opposite uh, kind of on your menu if uh, the Senate and the White House go Democratic here? Yeah, so I think if, 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 the, if Biden is elected president, regardless of the Senate, the regulatory burden will increase. Okay, we're going to go from a deregulatory environment to at least a neutral in some sectors and uh, a reversal in others. Uh, if he has a Senate, it'll happen even faster because there's something called the Congressional Review Act, which Trump used in 2016-17 when he was elected to reverse some of the last-minute proposals that the uh, Obama administration put through. So anything done the second half of this year would potentially be in jeopardy of just being reversed immediately with a majority vote in the House and Senate and the signature of the president. And then from there, I think there would be an effort on some environmental policy and financial regulation to continue along a different path. What's your view right now on the possibility of stimulus and when it might get done, if at all? So as far as um, if you're talking about COVID-19 relief that's currently being debated this year before the election, um, look, I mean, there's efforts. I think Speaker Pelosi and Secretary Treasury Mnuchin have been talking consistently. Um, I think Speaker Pelosi is going to put a new bill on the floor this week. But right now, we don't really see a leverage point for that happening. It's, it's tough to get bipartisan cooperation in the middle of a full-blown election season. 
Um, but we do think it'll eventually happen. It just may not happen until after the election. But once it happens, I think it'll be in the, you know, the $1.5 trillion range. So, Andy, are you surprised that we haven't gotten something done here? I mean, the need appears to be really acute here. We just had some news uh, today about the, uh, the difficult, difficult times that the retailers in New York City are facing. It just seems to be so acute, and it seems to be an election year. Why not pass it? I think there are some pressure points. I think you've mentioned one of them. Also, the airlines have said if they don't get relief by October 1st, they're going to lay off tens of thousands of workers. You have um, un- those who are unemployed who are no longer getting the $600 uh, additional each week. Um, so there are different pressure points, but politically right now, the- things haven't aligned. And so we're looking for those uh, leverage points to-, to push them. They haven't really... It's not there yet, and uh, but I do think it's enough there. That's why I think Speaker Pelosi is putting the, together another bill to pass this week. I think a lot of her um, moderate members are feeling a lot of pressure to get something done. All right, our thanks to you indeed for joining us today, and uh, we'll hopefully talk to you again after this debate and before the election. Uh, great chatting with you. Andy Blocker, head of U.S. Government Affairs in Vesco, which of course has $1.145 trillion in assets under management. We do have some more headlines that are a little bit troubling. New York COVID patients hospitalized now are at the highest since August 7th, Paul. So that's 571 yep. people hospitalized. And we had the, the data out a few moments ago, the numbers that are actually uh, testing positive, and it was above 1,000 again, so 1,189. So yesterday was a one-day reprieve, and we're back up above 1,000 again. Yeah, and uh, I guess the only silver lining I can take from the story is that it's relatively uh, regionally located in small areas, so hopefully the city can uh, uh, really contain it uh, and and treat it in the short term. Yeah, and indeed, uh, you know, the mayor said that uh, testers were sent out as well, so hopefully... If, uh, if they have been out of those areas, we'll know where and uh, be able to dampen it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.